Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We are now going to continue week six of our series, New Thing. And we're looking at really how the church started in the book of Acts. So the church as of now is about 2,000 years old. It's been around for quite a while, I would say. But really in the book of Acts, we get the first 20, 30 years of how this whole thing started, this new thing, this new movement, how it got started here in the book of Acts. And as we're in Acts chapter 4, we're seeing the first few weeks, maybe a couple months of this movement with this sort of powerful event that really unlocks some opposition that they haven't really yet experienced as the church. We're getting sort of an inside view, a ground level view of this new thing. And so I know that this series has been a bit disjointed. We had a week off for Easter and had a week off for baptisms and we're off uh, last week with Nicole being here. Didn't she do a great job uh, last weekend? So enjoyed uh, her message last week on, on the peace of God. So a bit disjointed on this series. It's, it's dragged on a little bit longer than I thought it might. So let's just do a quick recap as we jump into where we left off a couple weeks ago. So in Acts 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and they see a lame man at the front gate, and they, in the name of Jesus, heal him. He gets up, leaps, walks, praises God. This obviously draws a crowd around them, and so Peter takes this opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. While he's preaching about Jesus, we mentioned this then last week, the religious leaders who are nearby sort of capture them, imprison them, hold them overnight, and then question them. And so we'll do a quick recap of last week because it's going to really flow into this week. So uh, last time we talked about when the enemy attacks. And we looked at when we're attacked for our faith, there's three aspects to the attack that we face and things to sort of remember from the beginning of Acts chapter 4. So I'll, I'll cover those really quickly, and then we'll move, we'll move along to sort of the second half of that. So we talked about how the enemy will attack. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have an enemy who is ready to attack. Satan is his name, in case you didn't know who that was. And he's declared war on Jesus a long time ago. And if you follow him, he's now declared war on you. So the enemy is there to attack. The second part that we talked about is sometimes the direction of the attack that we face for our faith may surprise us because the enemy will use anything and anyone to oppose us and attack us for our faith. He doesn't fight fair. He's not playing games. He's playing for keeps. And so he will use anyone, even those that might surprise you. Even close family members may oppose you for your faith. Even your spouse may have been an obstacle in your faith. Maybe close friends that don't understand. Why are you a Jesus fanatic all of a sudden? You used to be a lot of fun. You used to be a different person. I don't like who you've become now. And so maybe they've turned their back on you. Maybe even you come from a family that has a different faith background or tradition, and maybe you've been cut out of your own family because of your faith in Jesus. On the surface, that may seem like a surprise, but remember, the enemy is not that person, is it? The enemy is spiritual in nature, and he's using these people to attack you for your faith. And the last part of the attack that we discussed was the attack is primarily against Jesus. 
And that's what's tricky about this is it is cosmic. It is a spiritual attack. So the enemy is Satan, not the person attacking you, and you're not the target of the attack. Jesus is. So when culture comes against you for your faith, you're not really the target, although you feel the effects of the attack. Jesus is the target. When those even close to you attack you, ostracize you, ridicule you for your faith, you feel the effects of that, but you're not the target. Jesus is. So those are, that's kind of what we talked about with the attack. Today we'll look at the other side of that, and we'll look today at your defense. So we set ourselves up last time at the attack part. Now we're going to look sort of from Peter and John's point of view in Acts 4 and look at our defense. So remember, Peter and John have been arrested by these religious leaders, so we have about 75 of the key top religious elite leaders in the nation of Israel have now arrested Peter and John. They've been put in prison overnight, and now we pick it up here at verse, Acts 4, verse 7, and they've been released now to be questioned by these authorities. So we'll read this entire section. It's about 11 or 12 verses, and then we'll unpack it today and look at your defense. So this is Acts chapter 4, verse 7. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing they, the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they've performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak again or teach in the name of Jesus. Today we'll look at this uh, set of scriptures here and look at three components that will build your defense when your faith is under attack. We can use the same strategy that we see Peter and John using here uh, when we are under attack. Here's the first component of your defense. All these are important. We'll spend most of our time on the first and second one, but uh, this is a key. Your time with Jesus will prove crucial for your defense. Your time with Jesus will prove crucial for your defense. Look again at verse 13, Acts 4:13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures, but they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. You know, for Peter and John and the other original followers, disciples of Jesus, on the surface, they took quite a risk to follow Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. And what did they do? They left everything. 
They dropped everything. What they were in the middle of doing, they left their jobs, their careers, their only way of making money. They left their family. They left their security. They left what they knew, what was comfortable to them. They left it all on the spot in the moment to follow Jesus. And day after day, they were with Jesus. Can you imagine that experience that they had? Watching Jesus work, listening to him teach, even the things that aren't in Scripture that I wish were those moments with just them. What, what was he saying to them in those moments? What, was he a good joke teller? I'm sure he, he was a great storyteller. I'm sure he told great jokes, like just between the 12 or 13 of them. They had a great time with him, day in, day out, watching, learning, listening, ministering with him. I mean, that's a master class of all master classes, spending time with Jesus. But these men are also human. So there, I'm sure, were times where they're thinking, did I just make a huge mistake? I left the only thing I know how to do, whatever that was, to follow this guy around the desert, traveling for how long? Did I really make a big mistake here? Is this worth the sacrifice? Is it worth the cost? Especially in moments where they met some opposition or they saw him meet up. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know that I signed up for this. Like, I signed up for the loaves and fishes thing. I signed up to see the miracles. I signed up to hear the teaching. But I, I don't know about the persecution part. And he gets this a lot. Like, I don't know if we really are made, made out for this. I, I don't know if we can, can do this or not. Sometimes they would maybe hear some strange things that Jesus said and are like, do I want to really be associated with that teaching? I don't know if I really want to be in the same group as this guy right now because he's getting some weird side-eye looks and I don't like how that feels. So they, I'm sure, had those moments. But it's in this moment in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John realize their time with Jesus was precious. It was not wasted time. It was training for what's happening to them right now. Their time with Jesus was crucial. And it's the same for us. If, we're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you may question, is it worth the sacrifice? Is it worth the cost? I don't, I don't know if I'm completely bought into all that that means. I didn't know it was going to, I don't know I was going to face this. I didn't know that was, this person was going to treat me this way now. I didn't know the culture was going to turn their back on me like I'm a knuckle dragger. I, I didn't realize that. But your time with Jesus, when those moments come, will prove crucial. Let me give you a couple quotes uh, to look at and think about here uh, this week. So Brother Lawrence, he, he was a 16th century French monk, and he wrote a couple of classic works, short, 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 short works. One of them is Spiritual Maxims. <clears throat> and in, in that book, he says this. He says, that practice, which is alike the most holy, the most general, and the most needful in the spiritual life is the practice of the presence of God. It is the schooling of the soul to find its joy in his divine companionship, holding with him at all times and at every moment. When you go back to Acts chapter 4, what did Peter and John lack? Training, education. The leaders looked at them and said, they're just ordinary, simple fishermen. Like they couldn't even graduate from rabbi school as teenagers. Like they these guys don't know the scriptures like we do, and yet they're trying to teach the people. They're trying to teach us, right? That's what they lack, but what did they have? They had time with Jesus. It's the same thing when you go back to the actual miracle in Acts chapter 3. What did they lack? Silver and gold we don't have, but what did, what did they have? The power in the name of Jesus to say, get up and walk, and he did. Same thing in Acts 4. What did they lack? Education, training, formal training. What did they have? time with 
Jesus. And that's what stood out to the religious leaders. That's what they noticed. They said, they've clearly been with this Jesus fella. They're just like him. And that's really where this term really Christian came from. It was a slam. It was not a positive thing. It's like now, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm bold about it. That was not the case in their day. It was a slam against them, a little Christ. Uh, It was an insult because they're just like him because they've been with him. They've spent time with him. Time with Jesus cannot be overstated. Time with Jesus is never wasted time. Another quote here from Jerry Bridges. We studied his book uh, back last year in our small group study. He wrote this about this time with Jesus. He says, Perhaps we should stop talking about being faithful to have a quiet time with God each day as if we were doing something to earn a reward. It would be better to talk about the privilege of spending time with the God of the universe and the importance for our own sake of being consistent in that practice. This is the purpose of personal time with Jesus. It's not to check a box. I did my Christian thing today. It's not to fulfill an obligation. It's not so I can feel good about my spiritual maturity. I can brag, you know, I prayed. I had my quiet time today, and it was three and a half hours this time. You know, that's not the point of this time with Jesus. It's just that we need it. I need it. You need it. Because just day to day we need it, but especially when the pressure's on in certain moments, when opposition comes hot and heavy at certain times, when, we are, when our faith is being tested, our time with Jesus will prove crucial. It will prove crucial. But there is a difference here. Let me just say this for just a second. There is a difference between um, knowing about Jesus and spending time with him. So here's what 1 Corinthians 8 says. This is Paul writing, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. The context here is about eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, okay? So he says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Here's what he says, though. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Also, my time with Jesus is not just to gain information about the Bible or to, Scripture memorization is great, but it's not just so I I have 75 Scriptures memorized just because. It's, It's not information, it's transformation. It's not just knowledge or education, and I'm a big proponent of education, okay? I have a college degree. Uh, I, I read all the time. I get made fun of. Even this last week, I, get, I got made fun of it because I had two big stacks of books I'm trying to work through on my nightstand. And Kim's like, what is that? And I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm chipping away. I'm getting there, you know? Uh, and so I'm not saying that knowledge is bad. I'm just saying knowledge alone is not enough. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing him through spending time with him. And Peter and John show us that very thing here in Acts chapter 3. To really combine it with the, the first quote from Brother Lawrence, it's, the, it's not the schooling of the mind, it's the schooling of the soul. It's, what, it's not just what I know, but what I believe. It's a deep down core belief. It's who I am. Spending time with Jesus helped me to figure that out and be strengthened in that. We need that time with Jesus. And maybe you know, I know, I know I need time with Jesus. I know I need to spend time with him. I just don't have the time to do it. Like I've tried this method. I've tried this time of day. I tried this length and I just can't make it happen. Let me give you some advice from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said this, he said, I have so many things to do today. I dare not ignore my time with God. 
So he didn't have the time, right? He's literally making a brand new sect of a religion. Like he doesn't have a lot of time in the day, but he had enough time. He said, I have so many things to do. I can't neglect time with God today. It's true. You may not have the time, so you have to make the time. And I'm talking to me too. Like we're all busy. We've all got things going on. We, but we've got to find that time in there. We need it. Again, on a regular basis, but especially in those moments where thing, the pressure's on and people are in your face and things are being said about you, things are being emailed and texted about you, things are coming against you, the enemy's working overtime to discourage you in your faith, that's where the time with Jesus will have proven crucial. You may not have the time, but let's make the time. Let's not ignore that pocket of time, but let's not push that aside. Let's find something else to replace, even if it's a few minutes. That's why it's a spiritual discipline, right? Time with him is a discipline. I dedicate this time because I know it's time well spent. I spend time with Jesus because I know it's going to have a positive effect. And what you're going to find over time is the more that you regularly do it, the more you're going to want to do it. You are going to have days where you don't feel like it. You are going to have days where it's like, oh, God, you know, I'm not really into it. But the more that you build that habit and that discipline, more often you will find the want to to want to. And I'm in the same boat of, of everybody else here, okay? This is an area where I've got room to grow. I can mature in this area. I've got to be better about being more disciplined to spend more time in this area. So we're all here in this together. But before we move on, why is it so important, though, that we do this? I got one more quote, and it's from an odd, it's from an odd source. His name is Rick Rubin. He's, he's a famous music producer. Uh, and here's, I read this a few weeks ago in this book called The Creative Act. He said this, when you get squeezed, whatever comes out is what's inside you. Now, he meant that in terms of creating art or music. So if you're an R&B artist, that's what's inside of you, so that's what comes out. If you're a painter and you love painting landscapes, that's what's going to come out because that's what's inside of you. I read that and thought of Acts chapter 4. When Peter and John are squeezed, what came out? Jesus, because they'd spent time with him. So when I get squeezed, I want Jesus to come out because I've spent time with him. I want faith to come out because I've been energized by spending time with Jesus. If I haven't spent that time, you know what's going to come out when I'm squeezed? Probably fear, maybe anger at the person opposing me. Really unhealthy, unhelpful things will come out because that's what I'm filled with. If I'm not filled with Jesus, other things are going to come out. Or worst of all, when I get squeezed, it's like an empty you know, can of Pepsi. Nothing comes out. I just get crushed from the pressure. That's maybe the worst thing of all. So we need to spend this time with Jesus so that when we're squeezed, that's what comes out. That's part of our defense, is this crucial time with Jesus. The second component of our defense is the second thing that we see here in Acts chapter 4, is that the Holy Spirit is with you. You spent time with Jesus, it's crucial, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit is with you. The first part of, of verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he gives a speech that we'll talk about in a minute. There's a story in the Old Testament, it's 2 Kings chapter 6, if you want to look it up. The prophet Elisha, uh, he is chased down by the king of the country of Aram. And he's chasing him down because every time the king has this plan, Elisha finds out and warns his people and they thwart the plan. Every time. So he sends an army to find this one guy 
and his servant. And he says, find out where they are, capture them, bring them to me. We're going to end this thing once and for all. So one morning, Elisha's servant goes out the front door and sees an entire army of an entire nation surrounding where they're staying. And he, you know, shuts the door and goes back in and says, um, we have a problem, okay? And what's the problem? Well, there's an entire army outside the door, and they're here for you. They're asking for you. And so Elisha prays a simple prayer for his servant. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. When the servant goes back out, opens the door again, what does he see? He still sees the army surrounding them, but surrounding the army, he sees an army of chariots and horses of fire. His eyes were opened to see. He thought they were outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned. But when he saw with eyes of faith, he saw God was with them. I think Peter has a very similar moment here in Acts chapter 4. Because remember, they are outnumbered 74, 75 to 2. They are cornered, they are captured, they are prisoners of the elite religious leaders, really then the governmental leaders of the nation of Israel. They are outmanned, outnumbered, outgunned, and they are, there is no way they can get out of this alive. There is no way they're going to leave the situation unscathed. Yet, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks to them. He had this same kind of moment, I think, that Elisha's servant had in 2 Kings chapter 6. I also think Peter must have remembered the words of Jesus from maybe a few months earlier. Luke 21, 14 and 15, Jesus had said this to Peter and the other disciples. He said, so don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. That's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 4. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. When you're persecuted, when you're wrangled up, when you're captured, when your life's on the line, I will give you the words and the wisdom in that situation. Peter and John are definitely not alone, not outmanned, not outgunned. Peter speaks with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not on his own. It's through the power of the Spirit. And I love what he does here. There's two parts that I want to break apart his his speech or his sermon, if you will. There's two things that he does. The first one, I think is kind of hilarious. He, first, what he does is he calls out the absurdity of the situation in front of him. Let's look at it again. Acts 4, 8, and 9. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? So what Peter says is, okay, let me just get this straight. Let me make sure I have the charges correct. We are under arrest. We are in chains. We are being threatened for healing someone. Did I get that right? right? Like, we're not breaking a law. We're not causing a problem. We're not, you know, destroying any property. We literally help to heal someone in the name of Jesus. And that's why we're here. He calls out the absurdity of the situation. It kind of reminds me of a story in the life of Jesus. We'll look at two miracles from Jesus. This is the first one that sort of have a parallel here in Acts 4. So let's go to Matthew chapter 12 for just a second because Jesus does the same thing. Again, this time that Peter had with Jesus, he's been taking mental notes this whole time. We thought he was just like messing around, putting his foot in his mouth, making a mess of himself. But no, he's actually watching and learning what Jesus did. And now he gets to put it into action. Matthew 12, let's look at verses 9 through 14. So Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he would say yes, so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep 
that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. So again, Jesus would probably say, let me get this straight. You're going to stop me and question me. After I heal this man, you're going to literally plot my murder for healing someone? Did I get that right? Did I miss anything? Anybody else watching? Did, that's all he did was heal someone. But because he did it on the Sabbath, he did a good thing on the wrong day, so it doesn't count. Jesus points out their absurdity of their religiosity. You're so strict on these rules that he even says, you would break the rule if it were something you were concerned about. If it were your sheep in your well, you would break the Sabbath law to do good. You would find a way around that. This man needs help. Just because it's a certain day of the week, am I supposed to not help him if I can? That's absurd. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. No one really thinks that way, except for you uptight religious people, right? So Jesus shows the absurdity of their religious thinking. And Peter does the same thing here in Acts 4. We're, we're being persecuted for healing someone? Like, since when has that been against the law? But that's how he starts, maybe not on the best foot, right? You know, calling him out like that. Maybe not getting him on his good side. But then he doesn't just call out the absurd. Then he follows it up by making known the answer that they need. The absurd and then the answer. He goes on, Acts 4, back to Acts 4, verse 10, the rest of his speech here. He says, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that this man was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, so again, he's not on their good side again, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And what Peter's doing here is quoting Psalm 118. Let's look at those verses again. We'll look at more verses here and then also back to this psalm next week. But Psalm 118, 22 and 23 that Peter's quoting, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. So I have a picture here of a, a cornerstone on a building. So this is the, this is the cornerstone from uh, one of the oldest buildings in the University of Vermont. Uh, it even says here it was laid by General Lafayette, who was uh, one of the generals during the uh, American Revolution and then the French Revolution as well. So after those revolutions were over, he actually came back and did sort of a, a tour of the United States. And whether or not he actually laid the stone of this building or just got credit for it, uh, we don't quite know. But his name and the date are on there. So again, Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone. There are two key aspects to this idea of a cornerstone and an actual structure that are very important to understand that you may know uh, that are, we have to know to see the importance of what Peter's saying and what the psalmist says in Psalm 118. So one function of a cornerstone is it makes everything else in that structure being built on top of it level and square. It's the first major huge stone in the corner of that building, the cornerstone, and everything else is going to be built based on that stone. 
So if it's not level, if it's not square, that's not going to be a sound structure. It will eventually crumble and fall because the cornerstone wasn't secure. Then the second thing, as you see here in the picture, there's many times some sort of engraving on the cornerstone. It lets you know clearly uh, who laid it, when it was laid, if it's like a church, who the founder of the church was. Uh, it should just say Jesus on there, but usually it's the pastor's name of the church, but that's ironic. Um, or if it's a government building, who the president was or whatever. So it gives this key info for the rest of time. It lets everybody know forever and ever, this is the information about this cornerstone of this building. Peter says, Jesus is the cornerstone of this new thing, this new movement called the church. He is the cornerstone. So what Peter is saying is, we are so confident in what we believe about Jesus, we will build everything we do on that. Because it is level, it is square, it is solid, it will hold the weight of anything built on top of it. We are so convinced of the claims of Jesus, what he did, what he said, who he was, that we'll build everything on it. And then he was also clear about it's Jesus. We mentioned it last time. It's Jesus and him alone. So that's the engraving on the cornerstone of the church. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Paul later on in Romans will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to anyone who believes. He, we're confident in building the church and our lives on him, and we're clear that it's him and only him. He is the cornerstone. So maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, but maybe you want a, a, a solid life. Uh, you want something to build your life on. This is why Jesus is the answer. He is the cornerstone. He, he is solid. He is firm. He will not crumble. He stands the test of time. He will not fail. Heat and pressure, don't, he doesn't give way to those things. He doesn't erode over time. He is our solid, firm foundation. He is the cornerstone and can be for your life. Maybe you are a Christian. This then is your confidence. This is your defense. This is what you can build your life on. It's Jesus. Let's go back to Psalm 118. We looked at these verses that Peter quoted, but earlier in Psalm 118, we also, I think, see a bit of a picture here of what Peter and John are facing. Again, we'll come back to Psalm 118 next week too, uh, kind of ending this section um, of, of Acts chapter 4. But let's look at these verses for just a second. Psalm 118, 10 through 12. Though hostile nations surrounded me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. I underline that because I think if we're going to look at act, through this lens of Acts 4, you could say here, I destroyed them all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Yes, they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord or in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, they swarmed around like bees. They blazed against me like a crackling fire, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord or in the power of the Holy Spirit. If your life is built on Jesus as a solid foundation, you can withstand any attack because the Holy Spirit is with you. In those moments of distress, he is your peace. In those moments of uncertainty, he can bring you certainty. He can give you a clarity of thought when you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do about this situation? How do I handle this attack? What's my next move? He'll give you clarity of thought. The Holy Spirit will give you confidence in your words, as he did to Peter here in Acts chapter 4. 
With the Holy Spirit, you can know you're never alone. You're never outmanned. You're never outgunned. You're never abandoned because the Holy Spirit is with you. He is your defense. Let's look quickly at the third, at the, at the third component here of your defense, and that is simply the results will speak for themselves. There are two main irrefutable results that the people, that the religious leaders look at and say, we can't do anything with this. The first one's at the top, Acts 4, verse 4. We skipped it last week because we're coming back to it today. Here's the first result from this miracle, Acts 4, 4. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. Now skip down to verse 14, and this is what the leaders also see as evidence, results. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them or threaten them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So the religious leaders here are kind of like the Grinch. Okay? They're like, I must stop this gospel from spreading. But how? That's kind of what they're doing there. If you like that, I got an even better analogy next week to start the sermon you're going to love. So just come back next week for that. But here's what they can't do. The religious leaders cannot ignore what's just happened. They can't. Because it's spreading like wildfire. Every time Peter and John do something, thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. This is a rapidly growing threat to them. They cannot just sit by and watch it happen. They can't ignore it. But they also say they can't deny it. This man has been lame for over 40 years since birth. He's been sitting at this gate for decades, begging for alms. Everybody is now seeing him jumping, leaping, praising God. We can't deny that that happened. We saw it. They saw it. It happened. So their, their only plan is we have to try to contain this. we got to work some magic. So you can maybe do some stuff, but you can't use that name. That name's off limits, okay? We're going to just call it propaganda. We're not going to give it any, any legitimacy. We're going to call it fake news, okay? That's, what we're, that's where that came from. It's Acts chapter 4. That's where fake news came from, all right? Then they say, well, we're going to threaten them. Like, did you like last night staying in the clink? You want more of that? No? Then stop talking about Jesus or you're going to get more of that. Uh, and we'll see in the next couple weeks, the threat didn't work out so great. <laughs> so, spoiler alert. Uh, one more story from Jesus, and, th and then we'll close. This same tactic was also tried with Jesus just a few months before, Acts 4. So in John chapter 9, there's a famous story of a man who's born blind, and Jesus sees him, and he spits in the dirt, makes mud, rubs it in the man's eyes. The man goes and washes out his eyes, comes back, and he can see. Just like the lame man in Acts 4, the neighbors who know this blind man can now see him seeing things. And so they ask him, who, how did this happen? Who healed you? And he said, this man named Jesus. He spit in the dirt and rubbed mud in my eyes, and now I can see. So then the religious leaders hear about this, and they say, no, no, no. Jesus is not from God. Jesus did not perform this miracle. Right? He, he's, he's not holy. Why? Same reason he did this on the Sabbath. 
gosh, these people just won't let this go at all. It's like, you know, must be a top 10 rule for them. I don't know. It's a big deal. Anyway, so they bring in the man to question him. Who did this? How did this happen? He just answers that question. Jesus did this and blah, blah, blah. So then they don't believe him. So they bring in the man's parents. They think it's a scheme. Well, he must not have really been blind. Maybe he could kind of sort of see, or maybe he's making it up, you know. So they bring in his parents to question them about what happened, and they don't want anything to do with this. So they say, hey, he's an adult. Ask him. We're staying out of this. So here's what happens. Let's look at this. John 9, 24, and then we'll close. It says, for the second time, they called the man, they called in the man who had been blind, and told him, God should get the glory for this, because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. Skip down to verse 33, the very end of his testimony. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. The results speak for themselves. The Pharisees in John 9, they try to discredit Jesus. They try to disbelieve him. They try to sow discord. They try to do the same thing in Acts 4. Don't do it. Don't talk about Jesus. We, we can't really ignore it, although we want to. We're going to try to discredit it. It's just, you know, it's just fake news. But the results are there. They can't deny that's what happened because power in Jesus' name healed this man. Peter has boldly proclaimed him as the cornerstone and way of salvation. Thousands believe signs, wonders, miracles are being done in Jesus' name. You can't deny it. The results speak for themselves. And so for you in your life, as you simply live your life of faith, the results of that will be your defense. You don't have to build a case. You don't have to get defensive. Just your life of faith is your defense. So when you say things like God will provide and then he does, that's your defense. Can't refute it, can't argue against it. When you say, look at the change that Jesus made in my life, and there are obvious evidences to that, no one can argue with that. That's your evidence, that's your proof, that's your defense. When you say things like Jesus can heal and then he heals, no one can do anything with that. They can't speak against that. The results will speak for themselves. When you live your life of commitment, no matter what comes your way, because you built your life on that foundation, people can't do a whole lot with that. That's your defense. When you don't just talk about a life of peace in Christ, but you live it out, that's your defense. You don't have to hire an attorney. You don't have to build a case. Just your life of faith is your defense. The power of Jesus being evident in your faith journey is all the proof and defense that you need. So, when you're facing attack for your faith in Jesus, don't neglect time with Jesus. It will prove crucial for you. When you're facing attack and it's hot and heavy and you're under pressure, just know that you're not alone. The Holy Spirit's with you. In that moment of difficulty, in that moment of fear and anxiety, he's with you. And know that your life of faith every day over time is your defense. The proof is in the pudding. The results speak for themselves. So if we take, I think, this three-pronged attack as our defense, we will see ourselves standing stronger than we thought we could, standing better than we ever imagined that we might because our time with Jesus through the power of the Spirit in our life of faith is our defense. Let's pray. God, as we said a couple weeks ago, we're not out looking to make trouble. We're not trying really to ruffle feathers but if we're followers of Jesus, our goal is just to live for him, 
to build our lives on the cornerstone, the firm foundation of who Jesus is. We are so convinced of his claims that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God himself. We're so convinced of these truths of his death, burial, resurrection that we're going to build our lives on them. And so not, not everyone's going to understand that or acknowledge that or appreciate that or support that. And so when we are attacked, may our time with Jesus be part of our defense. May we see the importance, the crucial importance of time spent with Jesus, not just learning about him, but spending time with him. May we know in those moments where we are being come against by so many people in so many directions, all at the same time we feel overwhelmed, we feel underprepared, we feel alone, help us to know that the Holy Spirit is always with us. He will give us the courage to stand strong. He will give us the wisdom and what to do. He'll give us the faith to speak what we need to speak and when we need to speak it and to act in a way that will bring honor and glory to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always with us. And may we understand that day by day, our simple life of faith is our defense. It's all the proof we need. I'm not going to buckle. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to continue this life of faith, and that's all the defense that we need. You are our defender. You are our shield. You're our tower of safety and refuge. We don't have to defend ourselves. You fight for us. You are our defense. Our life of faith is all the proof and defense that we need. So God, help us in this life, day in, day out, to live that life as our defense. Thank you, Jesus, for this time that we've had together today. Thank you for this weekend. I pray a blessing upon all those here today that we would leave empowered and encouraged to live this life of faith like never before. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.